we're being broadcast around the world, so give, we're good? Okay. Good morning, everyone. Gosh, I can't wait to hear what I have to say. Scary, isn't it? Just a couple things I want to really uh, encourage you guys to do. Um, I, I really believe, and I could be dead wrong, but I believe we are in the very last days. And if there was ever a time for you guys to get right with God, now's the time to do it. Amen. Tomorrow is promised to none of them, to none of us. Something else that's important that's just been God laid on my heart to share with you is if you're looking for truth out in the world, you're in trouble. The Bible is truth replacing lies. The Bible is the final authority in all matters of life, faith, and practice. So if you want to grow in your understanding of what's going on, if you want to grow in wisdom, it's not going to be from game show hosts. It's not going to be watching 3,000 episodes of CSI and Law and Order. But it is going to be if you can spend some time in God's Word. It will change your life as it did mine. So we're going to spend hopefully just two more weeks of Philippians. Then I really want to get back in Romans and get us through there. Uh, but I'm literally letting the Holy Spirit lead. There's just a lot here to grapple. So if you want to open your Bibles, or you can follow along with Philippians chapter 2. I believe I'm reading verses, was it 2 through 5? Let me see here. Yes, I think it's 2 through 5. So you can follow along. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, any fellowship of the Spirit, any affection and compassion, Paul says, make my joy complete. Being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit and intent on one purpose. Do nothing, do nothing, from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also the interests of others. Slide four. So this begs the question, who am I supposed to look out for? And, and, Church, what's getting in the way of that? So let's kind of just pick apart verse 3 and 4 and see what Paul's really trying to get across to us. So look at the first verse here. Do nothing from selfishness. And, and literally, uh, the Greek there from that word nothing, not one single thing should be done from the mindset of being selfish, not one single thing. That's really the force of the Greek there. The English doesn't really bring it out, but do nothing, literally not one thing from selfishness. Selfishness, meaning pushing against people to have your own way or empty conceit, meaning selfish ambition, personal glory, exaggerating one's worth of importance. And he really wants us to understand that our mindset, our phrenéo, our behavior should never be from the mindset of being somebody that is selfish, pushing against everyone because you have to have things always your own way. And don't be conceited. Don't think that you're more important than anyone else. And then he jumps over to the contrast, but with humility. 
humility, a lower view of one's own importance, recognizing our own insignificance, and that humility of mind. Our mindset should be of a mindset of a more recognizing other people is more important than ourselves or regard. Respect with an attitude of admiration one another as more important than yourselves. The question is, do we do that? Do we do that, church? Do we regard others? Do we respect others? Do we have an attitude of admiration towards others regardless of the way they treat us? Think about it. And then the NLT slide 6 says, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Thinking of others is better than yourselves. So slide 7, what did Paul mean when Paul used that word selfish? It's the Greek word there is urethian. What was going through Paul's mind? Because I really want to, I don't want to read 21st century thinking into a 2,000-year-old document and try to make that document fit my thinking. That document there is supposed to inform my thinking so that I think the way God wants me to think. So when Paul, what did Paul mean when he used that word selfishness? Well, the idea, it, it speaks, church, of a person who is continually seeking personal advantage and gain over someone else without any regard to how it affects or hurts that person or other people that are maybe in that person's family. So how does selfishness reveal itself in my life and your life? Have you ever stopped to think of, let's take the Word of God, use it as a mirror to see ourselves the way we really should be seeing ourselves and ask ourselves, how does that, that selfishness, how is it showing up in my life? How is it revealing itself in my life? Jealousy. Is there envy? Maybe a desire for position. Maybe we love to be flattered. Forming cliques with people to think the way I want them to think. Or maybe there's a strong desire to be recognized. You know, it seems clear that Paul was writing this letter because people who were not getting things their own way started railing against the church members. And that was creating disunity and divisiveness. Instead of working together and wrecking and celebrating each other's differences and saying, well, how can we work together? There's this divisiveness that he was really trying to push against, this disunity. And in our last time, you know, three weeks ago, we learned that back in Paul's day, this word selfishness really, as the word developed, came to mean this unbridled selfish ambition, this quarreling, this building yourself up while tearing everyone else down. And Paul was warning us about being that type of person who's striving to advance himself by using flattery or deceit or false accusations or any other tactics that are going to hurt another person. So that's what he's talking about when he says, Madame, or do nothing from selfishness, not one single thing. And then we look, let's look at what Wayne Max says one more time, slide 8. He defines pride this way. Pride consists in attributing to ourselves and demanding for ourselves the honor, privileges, prerogative, rights, and power that is due God alone. It is the very root and essence of sin because pride at its core is idolatry of self. It's self-worship. A proud person has put himself in God's place. And here's some diagnostic questions from Tim Lane, slide 9. I wanted to recap this from like three weeks ago because I thought it was really important. Do you hold other people 
to a higher standard than you do yourself. Now think about that. Do you hold other people high to a higher standard than you're holding yourself to? Do people regularly feel bruised in their relationship with you? Do your words tear down and destroy? Does your behavior make them feel that they're not even necessary in your life? It's only all about you? Well, it's quiet again, Dr. Carter. There it is. How about this, church? Do you love people with limits that are driven by your own perceived needs or interests? I'll love you if you do this, this, that, and that for me. So we're qualifying that love. Do we enter relationships for personal pleasure and fun, but we want low personal costs and high-defined returns? Mm. That's a tough one, isn't it? I want you in my relationship in life because of what you will provide for me. But I want low cost in giving back to you. Mm. There's something else I want to share with you that I didn't share the last time, three weeks ago, when I covered some of this. You know, it's funny when you're, if you're watching any type of television or even, you know, Facebook or Instagram. Did you ever notice that when you hear about all these drug commercials on TV, you hear all about all these things will do, but then at the end they very quickly go through all the dangerous side effects. You know, this will make your hair grow, but your brain will fall out your left ear, you know. All kinds of nonsense, right? So you hear, this drug will do this for you, but there's all these side effects. Now think with me this morning. One of the most dangerous side effects of selfishness and pride is that you forget about God. That's a side effect of pride. You just forget about God. We, we begin to think of ourselves as the God of our own life. And all of the new stuff, if you go to the bookstores, all the self-help stuff is all about, you can have it all today. You can be your best self today. You can all this stuff. And we begin to think of ourselves, hey, I'm the God of my own life. Why do I need, why do I need Jesus for? I want you to consider some sobering warnings written to the Jews probably about 3,500 years ago that are just as important today. Follow along with me in slides 10 through 12. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2. Right? Here's uh, Moses writing to the church. Well, the Jews at that time. You shall remember, meaning what? You shall keep in your mind and think on all the way which Yahweh, your Elohim, the Lord your God, has led you in the wilderness for these 40 years, that he might do something. There, there was a purpose. What was it? That he might humble you, test you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Do you still feel like maybe you're wandering in that wilderness community? That God's putting a lot of stuff in your life to kind of humble you and bring you lower so that you can see your need and dependence on him. The NLT in slide 11 puts it this way. Remember how Yahweh, your Elohim, the Lord your God, led you. So somebody was leading them. God was leading them through the wilderness for 40 years. By the way, they could have been in the promised land in about two or three weeks. <clears throat> Humbling you, testing you to prove your character and to find out whether or not you would obey his commands. Here's some other ones. Look at uh, slide 12. 
Moses goes on and says, Beware that you do not forget Yahweh, your God. Don't forget how? By not keeping His commandments or His ordinances or His statutes, which I am commanding you today. Remember, back in Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Teach it to your children. Bind it around your neck. You know, all of that was in Deuteronomy 6. So he's saying, listen, don't forget the Lord. Don't forget. How do, how's that forgetfulness showing up? By not keeping His commands or obeying His ordinances or statutes. Otherwise, when you have eaten and you are satisfied, then you've built your homes. you built your 401k. You build all of this up, and you're living in this way. And when your herds and flocks multiply, you know, when all your retirement's multiplying, and your silver and gold, little jingle in the pocket, multiply, all that's multiplied, then your heart becomes proud, and you will forget Yahweh your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. Church, beware what you give your time, talent, and treasure to. Beware. You know, you get that check every month and you think everything's great and you got a little jingle in the pockets and you're not thinking about two or three weeks from now or a month from now. Beware. NLT says it this way. But that is the time that you need to be careful. Beware that you have in your plenty. You do not forget Yahweh your God and disobey His commands, regulations, degrees that I'm giving you. For when you have become full and prosperous, you've built homes to live in. When your flocks and herds have become very large, silver and gold's multiplied, you get that big raise at work and everything else. Be careful. Don't become proud. Don't forget Yahweh your God who rescued you from slavery in the land of Egypt. Slide 14. So here's some questions. Looking at that text, let's ask some questions to draw us in. How quickly do, do we forget God showing up in our life? How does forgetting God show up in your life? Think about it. You know, we get so preoccupied, you know, or I need that drug fix, I need that heroin, I need the fentanyl, the crack, the booze. How quickly do we forget? That promise is freedom, but it's idolatry. and only puts you in slavery and destruction, broken homes, broken families, lost of jobs. That's the paycheck you get from that way of life. So how does forgetting God show up? How quickly do we forget what He's done for us? How quickly do we tend to make bad decisions when we start forgetting about Him? We don't spend any time in His Word because we're allowing our feelings to make decisions rather than His Word. How quickly do we ne neglect spending time alone with Him and in the Scriptures? When we have some coin in our pockets and feel good, do we just start forgetting about them? Hear me this morning, church. When we abandon our alone time with the Lord and become ungrounded in His Word, when we face a situation where hopelessness shows up because of some really bad problem or calamity, we are prone to become fearful. Uncertainty starts to work its way in and before we know it, it starts to consume our mind and every moment, and then we find ourselves trying to play God. So what do we do? We start clinging tightly to our own flawed wisdom and devices. Our imagination gets activated in our hearts, and we think we will find all the answers by ourselves instead of 
listening to God as he speaks to us through his word. This is how God speaks to us today. Make no mistake about it. Pride, church, hear me, it's a relationship killer. And pride kills and destroys families, homes, lives, jobs all the time. Look at slide 15 and 16. Solomon writing to his son. He says, son, listen. 14, 16. Son, a wise man is cautious. Right? He fears and is alarmed and turns away from evil. When he sees it, an alarm goes off in his head. And he turns away from that evil. Literally in the Hebrew, he, he's turning away from that, that personal calamity. He says, but listen, son, a fool, a casil, a fool is arrogant. So what does a fool do? He dismisses all the warnings. Oh, that fentanyl won't kill me. That heroin won't kill me. That booze won't kill me. No. Next thing you know, friends and people we all know are dropping dead. Who's telling the truth? The lie, the drug dealer, or the word of God? Amen. Slide 16. The wise are cautious and they avoid danger. Fools plunge head ahead with reckless confidence. Again, we notice that Solomon is contrasting the wise man and the foolish man. It's interesting that that, that word in, cautious that you saw there in, in uh, slide 15 has the idea, church, of this healthy fear. You see, a wise person has a healthy fear of the consequences of evil behavior and following that course of life. The arrogant person that we read about, a fool is arrogant, he dismisses all the warning signs of the consequences of the evil, and he carelessly places his confidence in his own ability apart from the Lord. Church, did you ever notice how quickly our pride can seduce us into ne neglecting alone time with the Word of God? Ask yourself this. Why do we find it so hard and so challenging to open up the Scriptures and spend five or ten minutes in it each day? Think about it. People can watch Facebook for 17 hours a day, and they can sit there with a the channel changer, and, uh, uh, or they can play video games until their, their brain just starts to drip out of their ears. But why and that, that's all mindless stuff because you know what? It activates the pleasure centers of your brain and it takes you into this little fantasy world away from reality for a time and that it becomes more and more addictive. Going into the Word of God requires you to think. It, it's an interaction because when you read the Word of God, please understand this, God's talking to you. As if He was sitting in that chair right now. When we're reading the Word of God, God is talking to you. Are we listening? Slide 17. You know, what, what, what does pride do? It whispers in our ear things like what? You don't need the Lord. You have all you need in yourself. You, you, you don't have time to read or pray right now. You're, you're too busy. I still remember that teenager from 10 years ago when I was counseling him. And he's going to college as if, you know, I'm like, I was there too. I know what it's like. And, um, you know, he's like, well, you know, Dr. Applebach, he says, um, listen, I, I really don't have time. I got all these studies. I said, well, do me a favor. Pick out any chapter of the word in Proverbs, any chapter at all, and let me time it. Read it the normal way you'd read. Let's see how long it took him. So he took a chapter in Proverbs, and it took him about two minutes to read the whole chapter. Two minutes. And I looked at him. I said, so-and-so, are you, are you telling me 
that God's not worth two minutes a day of your time to let him speak to you because unlike the professors that don't love you, he loves you. Amen. Don't tell me you don't have time because when you stand before the beam of seat, the judgment seat of God, I got news for you. You're going to wish you did take the time. Amen. We, we gradually see ourselves wandering, you know, like the Jews in the wilderness for 40, wandering away from developing and keeping a healthy, meaningful relationship with the Lord and other believers because you know what? Why do we do it? Well, a lot of times we don't want our heart exposed. Think about it. We don't want our heart exposed. You know, here's the funny part about it. God sees you inside and out. God knew what you were going to do a gazillion years before he knit you in your mother's womb. The, the, the idea is not that he needs it, but you and I need it. And then back in Philippians slide 18, he says, you know, do nothing from selfish ambition or empty conceit. So I had to sit there and say, okay, Paul, what did you mean by conceit? What did, what did the flavor of that word mean 2,000 years ago? How do I draw it out of the scripture and say, how does this apply to me today? Empty conceit. Kenodoxia. Two words, as you can see. Kenos. It's empty. Our English word is empty. Their word is kenos. Doxia. If you've ever been to a church where they sing a doxology, it's giving glory to God. So kenodoxia means empty glory. Slide 18. So conceit has the idea of having this very highly exaggerated self-view of yourself, and you're always boasting and talking about yourself. Everything is about you, because you're wise in your own eyes. So that's what Paul says. Don't do stuff from this empty glorian, this boasting about yourself and thinking you're wiser than everyone else. So we learn that Paul was warning us to do nothing to try to obtain self-recognition to gain some position, power, or prestige. We learned that this is clearly a problem with pride. So as followers of Christ, if you are a follower of Christ, all of us must constantly be on guard against this in our own lives, church. See, that type of behavior, that type of mindset can ruin homes, families, relationship, and a church. And then Paul swings to the other side, side 19, the humility. I want you to really think about that word. Let that word kind of like burn into your heart this morning. Humility. Humility doesn't mean you're a weak-minded fool. doesn't mean you're a sissy at all. In fact, it means just very the very opposite if you practice it. Okay? So think about humility for mine. Paul uses this word, but. He's introducing this contrast to this false motive of selfishness and empty conceit. The opposite mindset of selfishness, pride, and empty conceit is humility. So that word, slide 19, humility, means lowliness of mind. Think it. Tapienos means lowly. Fron, you already saw that word before. Froneo means mindset. You know, all of your mental, emotional activity happens up here, right? So this is what needs to be controlled. This is what needs to soak in the Word of God up here. So the, the, the idea of humility here has the idea of a person who was of little value, a person who was unfit. That's clearly the opposite of pride. Pride has always separated fallen, sinful man from God. Now think with me this morning. To be a 
true Christian follower of Christ is to adopt this humility mindset voluntarily. And it's clearly the opposite mindset of the culture you live in. I want to read something, slide 2021, from the Preacher's Sermon and Outline Bible. Something William Barclay said. To let, let this soak in. Really look at this, church. Humility comes from knowing ourselves just who we really are. Stop. Who do you tell yourself who you are? Nobody speaks to you more than you. Think about it. Nobody speaks to you more than you. So humility comes from knowing yourself just who you really are. It comes from an honest appraisal of yourself. And it takes courage to look at ourselves. It takes honesty, being honest with yourself, to see yourself as you really are. Basically self-centered and a bundle of self-affirmation and self-love. We tend to dramatize ourselves. We tend to see ourselves unrealistically. Don't we always, you know, our, our personal resume in our head, boy, we are the greatest thing. They should hire us tomorrow. There's no one on the world better than us. Think about it, how it just soaks up there. And Man, I am, I'm so good. So here's some questions. Do we tend to see ourselves at the center of the action? Slide 21. Do we tend to see ourselves as the hero of some spectacular rescue? You're dreaming, and you see that person drowning or something, and you're the one that dives in off the bridge 60 feet down, you know? Do, do, we, do we tend to see ourselves, we're the hero. Boy, we want to live in that world, that fantasy world. We're the hero. We're the center of the attraction, of the action. We're a great politician marching to victory. As a renowned sportsman, saving the game at the last second. Oh, boy, they cheer you on when they throw the ball from the other side of the court. At the, or, or, or the woman when they're young, the beauty queen, dazzling the crowd. Oh, look at you. Oh. Or, or for the men, the prince charming or, you know, sweeping others off their feet. That is just a little glimpse about how dangerous and destructive pride is. Because listen, be around people long enough and their mouth will tell you who they really are. Right? So I, I want us to notice for just a moment another way that God gets our attention when we're struggling with pride. I want to take a peek back at the Old Testament one more time. Because I love seeing how God dealt with people. And it's funny, they're no different than we are today. Look at slide 23 and 24. You shall remember, this is a little repeat of verse 2. You shall remember all the ways which Yahweh your God led you in the wilderness for 40 years. Remember, he led them so that he would humble you, test you to know what was in your heart, that you would know what's in your heart, really, not that he would know, because he already knew, whether you would keep his commandments or not. He humbled you. He let you be hungry. He fed you with manna which you did not know. Nor did your fathers even know that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, <clears throat> but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of Yahweh. You realize the only reason you're alive right now and have a heartbeat is because of him? Amen. We, we don't really think that way, do we? You know, we want to go to the gym and, you know. 
Your clothing didn't wear out. You didn't need a new Nino Cerruti suit, nor did your foot swell these 40 years. Thus, you are to know in your heart that Yahweh, your God, was disciplining you just as a man disciplines his son. Amen. I hope you spend time reading that. I encourage you to do it. And the NLT slide 24 puts it this way. Remember how Yahweh, your God, led you through the wilderness these 40 years, humbling you, testing you, proving his, to prove your character, to find out whether or not you would obey him? Yeah, he humbled you by letting you go hungry, then feeding you with manna, a food previously unknown, the manna, the coriander that came from the heaven and opened up. He did, he did it to teach you. People don't live by bread alone. Rather, we live by every word that comes out of the mouth of Yahweh. For all these 40 years, your clothes didn't wear out, your feet didn't blister or swell. Think about it. Just a parent disciplines his kid. Yahweh, your God, disciplines you for your own good. You know, if you're not being disciplined, that should be bone chilling to you. Because you, maybe you don't know the Lord. Slide 25. Did you ever find yourself in a situation that was well beyond your control? Do you ever find yourself wandering around looking for answers and never seem to get answers? You know, you're like, why doesn't God answer me? Why doesn't God answer me? Why don't I hear that small, sweet voice? Why doesn't God answer me? And God, and, and God's, and here's what's God, this is God up in heaven going, you know, you're acting like you got cataracts. It's there, you know. But we've all been there, right? Just like the Jews. Church, it seems that part of God's surgical tools in his toolbox, he uses to change our hearts, is that time in the wilderness. Time down in the valley when it's really rough. God gets his best soldiers when they're on their backs. Church, that's the operating table that exposes and begins to destroy the tumor of pride that's festering there. It's tough down in the valley. It's tough in the wilderness because you're like, you know, listening for God. That's the time to be in the Word more than ever and let Him minister to you. You know, I'm slowly finding this to be true in my own life, that the Lord, through these heart surgeries, wants us to come to a realization that He wants us to call on Him because He wants us to be with Him, church. Perhaps all we need to begin to understand that He is the one who can handle all that life throws at us. What is 1 Peter 5, 7? Dr. Carter's taught this many times. Cast all your cares or anxieties on Him. Literally in the Hebrew, God says, grab them, throw them on top of me. Because He cares for you. Second thing God says in His Word is, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I am with you wherever you go. If you don't see his hand, for heaven's sakes, trust his heart. Amen. Church, slide 26. Why do we seem to struggle with this? Why do we struggle with trusting him? Now, I want you to take a moment and think. Why do we struggle trusting God? Because we pray, we want an instant answer. 
We want that meal deal in our Burger King drive-thru before it's even made. We want, we want everything right then and there. You know, why didn't DoorDash have the order here before I even dreamed it up? That's, that's the world. We are in this pampering, instant gratification world. You know it. I know it. And when God doesn't answer you right then and there the way you want to be answered, oh, he doesn't care about me, or he's not real. He died. Why should I trust him? And God gets his best soldiers on the backs. God's like, you know what? You, those comments right there is why you need to be spending some time in the wilderness Amen. down in the valley. I need to use that surgery to break you on the operating room of the valley to break you of that pride, that soul-crushing pride that's just going to ruin your life. And here's the thing. We recycle the same sins over and over and over and over. And God says we should be putting those sins to death daily. Amen. Amen. Why do we find it so hard to let go of the reins of our life and trust Him? You know, we think we got it all together. Think about it. You've been doing it all your way for that long. Where's it gotten you? Think about it. Look at your life and say, well, I've, I've had the reins of my life. Where's it gotten you? You know? How, 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 you know? Every day we draw closer to drawing our last breath, church. Every day. There is going to be a day where we don't wake up here anymore. And all of YouTube and Facebook and Instagram and TikTok and all the television and all the comforts and DoorDash and all that stuff isn't going to mean anything. It's not going to mean a thing. Because it is appointed once for a person to die and then the judge. Please understand, the Bible says it is appointed once for a man to die and then the judgment. There's no second chance. There's no, sin generates consequences, church. Let's finish up with Paul here. Oh, good, I only have 17 more pages to go. No, I'm kidding. He says, regard one another as more important than yourself. I really want to take just a moment and unpack what's really being said here. That word, regard. Hegumenonoi. It means to consider or think about somebody in a certain way, to esteem somebody, to have this respect with the attitude or admiration, to highly favor somebody. It's a thought-out conclusion that you have made about someone. If you're regarding somebody as more important than yourself, that's a thought-out conclusion that you have made. But he ties that regard, that word regard with more important. That word more important in the, in the Greek has the idea to hold oneself above another. I'm going to lift you up and hold you up here. That's a choice. Think about it. So what is Paul telling us to do this morning? The first thing that comes to mind is how incredibly unnatural this way of thinking is for us today, particularly in our world and our country. You see, our minds are taught just the opposite of that way of thinking. And Paul is desperately trying to correct that Philippian church's faulty way of thinking and having that prideful issue they have, and that's just as true of all of us today. Remember, church, 2,000 years ago, the Roman citizens of that day had a way of thinking that was all about seeking personal praise and honor at the expense of climbing over each other. Politics was a real brutal thing 2,000 years ago in Rome. 
And we're not too far from it the way it's looking today. You see, we see that thinking is just as prevalent today in our culture as it was back then. So my best exegesis of this statement would be that I need to model Christ and I need to place your needs above my own. That's hard to do for all of us, isn't it? Well, you know the situation I'm in, Pastor Jack. You don't know how hard it is for me, Pastor Jack. You know, it's interesting. Ten years ago, when our church was on High Street, there was a horrible fire at 538 High. And, you know, most of the people that were attending our church, just like today, were people that were homeless or in desperate poverty. And the people that lost everything became newly homeless. And our church was the staging area for the Red Cross for that evening. And what was interesting is this. Our homeless people were helping the new homeless people how to navigate homelessness. Wow. Don't tell me that the homeless people have no value. That's a lie. think about it what would be different in our relationships if we started to treat each other that way Amen. I'm not better than you you're not a, I'm not above you I need to esteem you meaning respect you and have a genuine sacrificial concern for you as well Amen. we try to practice that here we really do let me finish up with uh, verse 4 here slide 29 through 31 so Paul finishes this way of thinking up. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interest of others. The NLT slide 30 says, don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others. So look at, sli look at slide 31. Here's some questions just to finish this up. What would be different in your relationships, especially in the church, if you adopted the mindset or if you had the same genuine interest in others that you have in yourself what would start to change what would be different think about it if I had the same genuine interest in your well-being as my own how would that change the whole culture in the church all the churches what would be different in our lives if we were no longer concerned just about ourselves or with being recognized or honored I, I've said this before, life will trash your trophies. I remember walking through Methacton High School with my son, oh, probably about eight years ago, he was playing basketball. And I went to Methacton, and I was in band, jazz band, jazz lab, all that stuff. And it was interesting that I walked through the area there, and I saw some of the trophies, and I saw some of the plaques of the wrestlers. Some of them aren't even alive anymore. What was interesting is, it was all fading away. You could barely read the text in the little things. And I started to say, you know, life will trash your trophies. Yep. Yep. Who's going to remember? Nobody remembers any. Our jazz band was one of the number one Jader, uh, jazz bands in all Pennsylvania. Nobody cares or remembers that. It's not that important. What's important is our relationships with each other. Right? What would be different in our lives if we were no longer concerned ourselves with being given a position. You know, it's interesting. The guy that sweeps the floors at McDonald's is no better or worse than the guy that owns the store. Because you know what? When they're both dead, they're both going to be covered with the same six feet of dirt. Yep. Amen. 
You know, you can't take his 401k or his profit sharing with him there, can he? Amen. Okay. And then one other calendar measure against pride is and self-glorification. Listen to this. This is important. Your circumstances and my circumstances in our lives, listen, please hear this. Our circumstances in our lives should never, ever be a determining factor as to whether or not we serve each other or esteem each other as more important. Okay? Very important. Your circumstances don't have to change your mindset about each other. And I fully understand that when our minds get weighed down with the struggles of life, we tend to withdraw and just want others to serve us. I can't tell you how many times I've heard this, slide 32. Pastor Jack, you don't know what I'm going through right now. No, no, I don't. That doesn't have any bearing on how I should treat you. No, you don't know what I'm going through right now. Should have no bearing on how you treat me. So, slide 32. Ask yourself, why, why do we struggle to serve others? Well, why, why do we find it hard to be patient with others with their shortcomings and failures? Because you know what? Don't we want people to be, you know, really patient with our shortcomings and failures? I know I got plenty of my own. Ask my wife. Amen. You know? Well, why, why, why do we find it hard to celebrate the success of someone else? If somebody else gets a good job or comes into money, why shouldn't we celebrate that success for them? Amen. Instead of being envious and jealous, like, oh, I deserve that too. I deserve that. Why do we find it that we're so tempted to gossip about some, somebody? Why? Because it makes us feel better about ourselves when we can talk about how bad somebody else is? You know? And, and think about it. When you're standing before the judgment seat, if God has the screen there of all the things that you did that were horrible and rotten, would you want to hang with that same person? Mm, got quiet again, Dr. Carter, I don't know. Why do we envy the money or power of success someone else has? Why? Don't have to. You know, some of the richest people on planet Earth are some of the most dysfunctional, messed up people. Amen. That would blow your mind. I've met people that have so much money it would scare you. And they have, I, I keep your money, <laughs> keep it. I would not want that kind of headache in my life. Paul said, I learned to be content when I had a lot and when I had a little. You know? Trust me. I know when we're struggling and we have no money, we think, oh, if I have just a little bit more, if I had just a little bit more, money doesn't. Your, your mindset changes everything, and it changes how you handle and deal with money. Why do we want to shortcut God and play the lottery? You know, I, I have to crack up. They see that little bouncing ball. Oh my God! Oh, oh, God! I asked you to help me win the lot. Oh, you know. And yet, majority of them, well over ninety, what ninety-five, ninety-six percent of them, are worse off five years after they won that money, and before they had it. Because if you can't learn to manage a little bit in your life here, don't be foolish and think that if you came into a lot of money, you can manage it here. It don't work that way. And let me finish up here, slide 33. One more thing that Wayne Mack says. 
Wayne Max says this, the beginning of true humility then is an awareness of our total depravity that comes with the initial work of the Holy Spirit in salvation. Let me read that again. I want you, I want you to look at that closely. The beginning of true humility then is an awareness of our total depravity that comes with the initial work of the Holy Spirit in salvation. Only <clears throat> through the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts are we able to see our desperate need for God. Stop there. Let me ask you an honest, right to the core of your being question. Do you see how desperately you need God in your life? I really hope and pray you do. Once we have cast ourselves on God, truly repenting of our sins, that's confessing them and turning away from them, and placing our faith in Christ alone for forgiveness, we have begun the process of decreasing pride in our lives and increasing the Holy humility. I hope you see that, church. God, the Holy Spirit, gives each of us the ability to place someone else's needs above our own. He gives us the ability, church, to declare war on pride that chokes, wounds, and destroys your relationships. And Paul Tripp will finish up with this, slide 34 and 5. Paul Tripp says this, You have to see how much of a servant you aren't, you are not, before you can start to become one. That is the abiding irony of the Christian life. I want you to know, Paul didn't say, but also for the interest of others, but only if they're worth it. Obviously, they were worth it to God. He created them. Tripp goes on to say, last slide, Jesus served because it was the right thing to do, but he also knew it was the only way his disciples would be freed from the hollow pursuit of personal glory and the slaving nature of self-love. I want to ask you to bow your heads this morning. I know this was a tough message to hear. I understand that completely. I want you to think about what you learned this morning. I Hopefully you were paying attention to the text and grappling with it. What are the things in your life right now that are hijacking your walk with the Lord? Is it the fentanyl, the crank, the heroin, the booze, sucking it down, trying to numb away pain? What is that thing that is really hijacking your heart because it's promising you freedom but only delivering slavery. If that's somebody that you're here today and you're struggling or you're listening around the world and struggling with it, I want to encourage you to do something this morning. I want you to encourage you to surrender your life to Jesus Christ as he has been freely offered to you in the gospel. Okay? I want to also tell you this. You will never, ever conquer any of it on your own. You will not conquer addiction on your own. You will not conquer any of it on your own. That's why the scriptures say, confess your sins to one another so that you may be healed. It is amazing when somebody sits in my office and pours it out, how that's the beginning that their life begins to change. There's only two things that I see in scripture regarding salvation. Repent and believe. Amen. Repent Metanoia means to turn away from the sinful behaviors you're practicing and confess them to the Lord. 
You know, just be honest. Lord, I'm, 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 I'm a heroin addict, Lord. I'm, I'm, I'm enslaved to fentanyl, Lord. Confess your sins to the Lord. I'm, I, I, need, I need that booze, Lord. Confess your sins to the Lord. Turn away from it. And place your faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness for sin. The writer of Hebrews tells us, there's one man that went to the cross for you. That's the man, Christ Jesus. He is the one that shed his blood that the Father took as a payment for your sin. And I've said it a million times, I'll say it again. The very worst about me and the very worst about you was taken and placed on Christ. Romans 3, chapter 3 through 5. The very best about Jesus Christ was then placed into your account. Okay, we call that the great exchange. Worst about us, it's placed on him. The best about him, placed on I don't deserve that, do you? I don't deserve that. He did it in spite of my sin. He did it because he loves me in spite of myself. If you repent and you trust Christ, I don't mean just lip service to him, praying some prayer, and all of a sudden you think you're saved. I mean really trusting him. That means every area of your life is now open and exposed to him, and you are trusting him alone for your salvation. And again, someday you're going to drop dead. There's going to be a time where you're not going to wake up. And you're not going to be able to say, I didn't know better. And it's too late. If you die without Christ, please understand me. It's too late. So I want to encourage you today. You listening around the world to surrender your life to Christ. Lord, I've made a mess of it all. I've screwed up bad. Destroyed my home, my life, my family, my job. Because I was chasing that, that heroin God, Lord. Or that meth God, Lord. Or the booze God, Lord. Or the pride God. Lord, I've made a mess. Lord, come into my life and help me clean it up, Lord. Amen. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In Yeshua's name, amen. If you're going to have a meal here, line up right here along here. If you're just getting stuff, 